one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Very excited to have my guest with me today. He is a coach and a consultant, the founder of The Hive, and a contemplative leader. Most importantly, he's a dear friend of mine. So I have today Troy Bronsink. Hi, Troy. Hey, Shonda. It's great, great to, to be, be with here. you. <laughs> <laughs> it is good. So I'm going to start with you like I do all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? It's a great question. Um, uh, just to totally deconstruct this, people behind the scenes can know this is the second time I answered this because my mic didn't work the first time. So uh, I like having the chance to re-up on this, but I'd say the same thing. I, you know, I'm, uh, it's holding space uh, for courage and compassion. And uh, the reason I say that is that um, holding space with an individual for them to kind of, uh, open up in the inner life and recognize the things that are blocking uh, the courage and compassion. That's our regular inheritance, our, our natural gift. Uh, a lot of times that's blocked up based on um, the ways that our inner life has blended and the ways that we uh, are kind of stuck in a response that we understand to be fear or anger and, and uh, or overwhelm or what have you. So holding the space for somebody to come alive to that um, is absolutely what I love, but it also feels like it's a way of participating in love. And then over the years, so much of my work has been holding space for groups. And uh, I think I, I've really come to find, to discover that it's, this, it's a fractal of the same thing, that actually at the group level, there's also um, collective blockage that's either kind of culturally happening or in that episode in that moment and there's managing parts in the room that want to kind of hold that and they might be anxious or afraid or angry and again my labor of love is holding the space for that to come forward without it uh putting us into a kind of uh a place where we're all um operating from triggered responses and i guess the what I love about the labor of love question is that um, to say I love you too to the world um, doesn't come without a cost. There is a labor to it. And that labor, that, that weight um, is the willingness to be not just uncomfortable, but to not uh, um, to be in places where I normally might've been fearful. I might've been kind of put on my heels and gone, how am I gonna fix this room? Or, or what, how do I handle this overwhelm that this person is sharing with me? And the labor is going like, oh no, what I've found to be true is that there is something that wells up when we wait. There is something that our body's telling us that we can listen to. And so the labor is about staying with that 
instead of uh, moving up to my head to some great strategic response or kind of into a leading question kind of approach. So uh, I, I like that question. Yes, thank you. So much there, and I'm sure we'll be able to go into the different sectors of that, but let's start with how did this become a passion and labor of love for you? So when you think about holding space um, and you think about contemplative practices um, and things like that, where would you follow the root of this in your life? Yeah. It's interesting. I have two memories that come to mind and they're almost like different paths. And it wasn't until maybe the last five years that I recognized how the paths um, were similar or might be leading to the same land. Um, one was uh, when I was right out of college, uh, my first job was uh, um, Christian ministry related and it was with youth. And I had a spiritual director that introduced me to contemplative practices. And so I uh, was learning to be able to sit and meditate, learning that actually I could be in a quiet and still space and uh, first of all, like I'd come from kind of a, uh, a, a more, we could say fundamentalist background where if you were quiet and still, then you were afraid that like evil things would come in. So you need to be always talking so that nothing else can get in. And so just learning that there's a long tradition in, in my lineage and other uh, spiritual lineages for holding space for silence that actually something does arise. Um, and so I, I learned that habit, you know, as a shoot. 23 year old having a 20 minute silent sit on a daily practice um, that kind of banked things up for years and years to come. And um, I think I began to see the intersection between that kind of listening and holding group space um, much later. So, so then I'll go to another story about kind of the holding group space. Um, when I was, I, Kelly and I, my partner, when we were married for maybe, it'd been maybe four years, we were in, um, we had moved to Washington State and then back to the South to Atlanta, and I was going to graduate school uh, for a Master's of Divinity, and then we moved into a uh, mixed income community, and then right after grad, after seminary, moved into a um, uh, a, a community struggling with gentrification, but at the very early parts of those struggles. And so the long-term civil, like literally civil rights leaders, folks that had been part of the movement um, and were still connected to Morehouse and Spellman and those places um, were partners of ours because they lived on our block. And so you had elderly folks, you had young couples buying their first house, you had folks that were renting and in many cases uh, weren't treated well by their landlords and moving through very, you know, every nine months, somebody knew there. And there was a real challenge for how that neighborhood would be able to talk to one another. How might we talk with one another? And I think I was, uh, I came across a couple facilitators that were teaching me models like appreciative inquiry and asset-based community development and um, conversations for transformation circle way. And I began to recognize how powerful it is to pull folks together uh, in listening circles in ways that we might listen to one another. And so, you know, I was pretty young at this and you'd have some folks 
just totally go off the rails and have these really strong opinions about not in my backyard, yada, yada. You'd have somebody else, you know, those moments where the room would melt because an elder might tell a story about um, the struggle they've had in the neighborhood and the love they have for their grandkids. And um, I began to realize how important it was for me to be in those spaces and then began, you know, was blessed with mentors along the way to learn how to hold the space for those kind of conversations. So, you know, the first, those contemplative practices that would have started in 95. And then this uh, organizing practices would have started around 2004 or 2005. And I would say then by around 2014, I began to see the need for both of those and a desire to hold both of those. And so the hive was born of that vision and um, I think we still would have said they were separate practices. We teach people to do contemplative things and we hold space for meaningful conversations. And I would say they intersected um, in the last um, three years. And a lot of it, like some of the work you and I've done together and, uh, and, and Daniel and others of just watching that when the inner space has an openness and is breathy, that the shared space is too. And so tell the listeners a little bit about the hive. So now we've introduced this place that you mm-hmm. founded that brings these two paths at least close enough in proximity that they're being held in the same space yeah. uh, before there's a, maybe you would consider a true integration of that. When you began the hive, what were some of your initial thoughts about what you were creating and what did that eventually grow into? Yeah. I mean, there's a, you know, probably a dozen different origin stories behind the hive, but I think the one that speaks to this and, and uh, um, yeah, I think applies best here. There, we, I was living in Northside. I live in Cincinnati and in the neighborhood Northside. And there was uh, a friend we share in common, Sarah Buffy. Uh, Sarah was moving deeper into her work, both personal work, um, that's her story to tell, and then the public work she does around trauma-informed um, uh, therapy or trauma-informed conditions, trauma-informed social work. And we really clicked and realized we wanted to be asking more questions like this with other people. And so we put together a book club and the book we decided to use was um, around spirituality and the 12 steps. And um, the other folks that Sarah invited into that conversation were uh, like Davy Brown, who was one of our early facilitators, Amy Tuttle, who's still involved with the hive um, and a number of other just gifted folks. And we would have a conversation about the reading, but I would begin it with a contemplative practice. And then the reflection time, the, if, if you will, the small group time was rooted more not in like a intellectual study, but more like this is where it's hitting my body. And I don't even know if we'd use the language yet about where it's hitting my body, but it was definitely like, well, we did because of the Enneagram. It wasn't like, instead of headspace, like what does your heart and gut have to say about this? And after that, I think it was an eight week study, we looked at each other and went like, where else can we go in the world to do this? And we were all thirsty for a place that could do this. In my own experience, 
I was either always like an artist's way group or a, a, even maybe a therapy group that had no spiritual um, connections or wasn't connected to my work as a Christian minister, or I was doing this at a church and inviting other people into it. And I realized I didn't want to start a, another space that was um, kind of oriented around the same faith tradition where that like-mindedness was a requirement for doing the work. So that was another impetus is we wanted to create a space that uh, was about shared practice instead of like-mindedness. Mm. Um, I, uh, and so then it began to be, what are the themes? And it's interesting the way you just described that, like later on, it became clear that this, these are all fractals of the same intuition. But at the time I saw it more like curating a variety of things that were all needed. And so the curation or the kind of meal planning for this, you know, five course meal or whatever that the hive would become, there would be, I, I knew we needed artwork. And so early on, Barb Smucker from her work around, um, around creativity and, um, and collaging and that we would bring that in. I knew we needed poetry. And so that would come in. And then we had uh, a couple yoga teachers and a Qigong teacher and, we knew we wanted to deal with um, social justice and community action. And so there'd be different types of uh, teachings around that. And then um, I was fortunate to just, you know, the network started to present itself. I'd find Buddhist teachers and uh, um, mystics who were using Sufism and Christianity. And then I had from my own tradition folks I was meeting um, Christian spirituality, and then just mindfulness, like um, John Orr was a guy that was, uh, that taught our first mindfulness class. And uh, I think, you know, John, right? I do know yeah. John. Yeah. He, he's speaking guy. a language of former guests. So, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, if, it, yeah. you know, Sarah Buffy, I call her the great connector, um, connects so many people connected me to the hive. Uh, she's on season one, early episodes and John Orr, um, he is actually one of our most listened to podcast episodes with kindly right? said he is oh. a dear friend of mine and former colleague so um yeah we're talking about some powerhouses in the sense of not even people who would ever call themselves that or maybe even consider themselves that but um people who are rooted and grounded in doing their own work and allowing that work to transform those outside of them is how I would describe uh, a lot of the people that you you just named. And so it's interesting to me that there there is this like, okay, here when I hear you say, I knew we needed art, I, I knew we needed poetry, like here are these aspects that I knew we needed. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did you know that? <laughs> what, what, mm. what, what were the things that, that drew you towards creativity as well as some of these other parts that would come to form this entity called the hive? It's a great question. I mean, it's impossible to say I would have known it any way other than my own experience. So I guess I could say each of those facets of the diamond, if you will, each of those facets had pulled and had tugged on me and opened me up. Um, you know, when I think about like a lot of the suffering in, that 
I've experienced and then recognized in others is that there's an isolation that, uh, that develops over our life where we feel separate from source, where at some point I feel like there's something I've done that now I need to bargain my way back to being whole, bargain my way back to being blessed or being seen by God or the divine or um, walking without shame. And so I'm just so grateful for poets and artists that invited that invite you into that. I, I wrote a book in 2010, I kind of forgot about that, that applies to this, that really was around design thinking and creative process for spirituality and activism. And so I, I kind of always saw a connection point. I'm a singer songwriter and I, I love making music and poetry. And so those, um, those have been places where my parts have unblended and I felt free found a kind of self-leadership. And I guess I just uh, wanted to be able to um, experience that with others. And pretty quickly was like, it's better if there's a multitude of teachers or facilitators. We were pretty deliberate early on to say, to call the folks that hold classes at the Hive facilitators rather than teachers, because a lot of times centers that have kind of spirituality in their, in their name or in their theme start to evolve around around a teacher as a figurehead or as a guru and so facilitator is a little more on point it's like no this person is opening a class opening a space for something to emerge rather than showing up with a wisdom nugget and everybody's going to sit in a line and watch that and emulate it yeah um, does that answer your question it does it does and i think it highlights something pretty important that i i hope people are catching and hearing but i want to illuminate which is how often people um, in general recognize a need for something, for example, and may even identify that they hold the, the gifts and the talents and the capacity to start something. And how sometimes that conversation, even if it's just internal dialogue, goes around, um, well, so what should I do? And what are people wanting and, 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 and what are people needing? And this is coming a lot as an entrepreneur sitting in different spaces um, because I never wanted to be an entrepreneur in case you're new to this podcast. I've been telling this story for a long time. I, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. And so moving into that space, I've always been able to say, I don't know what I don't know. And as I began to surround myself at times with people who I thought would just tell me how to be an entrepreneur and what I needed, sometimes I found myself in particularly capitalistic spaces that were asking the question, encouraging me to think about what do people need and how can I do it better than mm. someone else who's already meeting that need? Mm -hmm. What's going to set me apart? You know, Competitive advantage. Yeah. What, what, what's your value proposition and how do you, how do you make sure that you set that apart? And now I have words to say that doesn't fit my, my relational um, worldview, mm. but it's interesting. And as I hear you and so many of the people who I get to connect with, who've started amazing things, it's around, here's what I needed slash mm. here's what I experienced. And I wanted to experience that with other people. 
or make sure people had access to it. And I didn't hear you say that, you know, you did, what do you call those things? A focus group. You did a few focus groups and you asked folks, you know, what would be helpful or things like that. But it was, here are some of these experiences. Here are people who are hungry or thirsty for the same things. Here's how we connected. And then we continue to grow that. And I just wanted to throw that out there for people. Cause I know there are so many people who um, are called to do amazing things in some capacity. But I know that in our culture, there is a very heavy veil of, well, somebody's already doing that. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they're already doing that. And I, I don't know if I could be you know, better than that, which doesn't lend to the individuality of our gifts, our lived experiences and what we genuinely bring that isn't or doesn't, I don't believe, have to seek to be better than, just needs to be present. And how, what is for us is for us. What those who uh, will gravitate towards towards us in that moment are those who need us at the time. And I I hear that coming through as you kind of tell this story um, of how the hive originated. Mm -hmm. Also like many uh, businesses and things, how, how did you manage pivots along the way? Um, as you've already stated, how the hive is now is not necessarily how it started in some ways. So what did managing pivots and recognizing the need for pivots, what did that look like for you? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd love to get to that. I want to say something along the way, and I think it relates, and that's... Um, like as you're talking, I'm feeling a lot of response in my body, like in my chest. And I'm realizing that uh, um, in one way, you're, you're speaking to what wants to wake up in me, that, the, that my yes to the world isn't something that, I'm, um, that, that I need to be a huckster in order to make a space for myself in the world. My yes, my I love you too, to go back to your question of labor's love, my I love you too isn't I love you too, so let's have a conversation about my value. Um, it's, I love you too, so I will be. And I also, that I love you too is, is large enough for the whole world, for the whole universe sometimes. I mean, that, that's, that's when I experience it as really vital in me. And so it believes that there is, it trusts or the, the heart, it's not a head exercise for me, it's, because the head can be problematic. It drops to the heart space, and it's that I dare to, dare to love that, or courage, or faith. Maybe the word's faith. There's a trusting of, we we'll build this together. What you need, you can speak to. What gifts you have, you can speak to, and the gifts I have are a part of that. Um, I, th- I think that that plays a role in pivoting. And I'm going to try to explain this staying at the heart space because um, that's more interesting to me and, and nourishing. Um, is uh, an organization is a set of agreements. It's a community of people that have a shared set of agreements, and we've done this well and we've done this poorly at the hive. And um, and but I think when pivots have happened that have been effective it has been participatory, it's been a participatory design process. There is something 
about those who are holding those agreements coming together, coming to terms with a emerging hurdle. What's the future that's wanting to happen here? And so sometimes we might ask it like, um, well, I can think of, uh, of two pivots in particular that might help explain this. One was uh, um, our colleague, Daniel Hughes. Uh, he and I, you know, the Hive started in, our first class was in March or April of 2016. And so by the end of that year, uh, many of us in, in the circles that I've been in were surprised by the election results and the, and the nation was starting to feel very different than when I was dreaming up the hive with people. Um, and with that, then the uh, murder of uh, Sam DeBose at the hand of uh, Ray Tenzing, the UC police officer, um, Daniel and I were friends. Daniel's a um, black man who's also a pastor. And together we said, Sorry, we need also to a former guest, just to okay, throw that out good. there, you know, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So they yeah, have a reference. You gotta get some Dan Daniel time. You Dan get Daniel some and I, um, and, and Luna, um, had some bonus episodes around racism and our experience with it. So go and check that out. But yes, Daniel. Ooh, yeah. And so, Daniel and I said, we, we need to, uh, we both felt a need to hold space for conversations um, around race. And this was uh, like Kendi's first book, uh, Stamped, was, uh, was out, but there really wasn't much else out there. Maybe, uh, I mean, obviously, Bell Hooks and uh, James Baldwin and others, but, the, uh, but we were like, we just need to hold the space where people can have the courage, a brave space, where people can have the courage to talk about what we do and don't know and what we're recognizing in our bodies. So we were creating these little potlucks on Fridays um, on a monthly basis for this conversation. And I would say the pivot came when, um, when we realized this is actually a way of training anybody that comes in intersection with the hive. This is something to bring out to the world that are asking these questions at a time where there weren't a lot of leaders stepping in to hold that kind of space. So I would say the pivot happened there because we were listening for, um, for the interest in the world and people were giving us invitations. And we were listening to one another for what, like what arises in you, you know, Daniel, you, you can't have a conversation with Daniel before eventually he's gonna say, what do you want? So it'd be like, Troy, what do you want? What do you want? Here's what I want. And we began to realize we, we have it placed within us, and this is your, to respond to pivot. I think all of us have placed within us, um, I'll just use the language from my lineage, um, eternity or infinite love. And so the very thing that is on its way through me, Hafiz, this uh, Sufi poet has this uh, line where he says, I'm a hole on the flute that the great mystery breathes through. I'm a hole on the flute and so I think pivoting is about believing I'm still a hole on the flute, but now there's a different kind of song happening. And can I just consent to that song and enjoy it? Um, uh, a second pivot was in COVID when we had to move to online. And we had really made a uh, kind of made a name for the hive being like, we're not like all those online classes. We're, uh, we're in person. We're, we're real 
we're real community because we're in person. And then all of a sudden we couldn't be in person and we had to eat our words. <laughs> and, and you were a part of that, right? When we began to use Courage to Connect and other courses online, and we were amazed at the ability to hold space in those uh, in the virtual space. And that was very much a pivot because it was responding to the environment around us. It took some courage to kind of say, we once said we are this, and given these conditions, we're now this. Um, and um, in that case, it also, that took a lot of um, human power, like transition of resources. And um, I'd still, I'm still in awe at how quickly in about 10 days, because we had just moved to our new building on Hofner Street and had our open house on March 14th ready to launch classes that weekend. And instead we took a week long break and we pivoted everything to online and um, really very few hitches early on, it just happened. And um, so I would say this, and, and if you wanna go into the academic space, I'll just bump to my head for a second. Um, Otto Scharmer is a, uh, um, a guy that integrates mindfulness and uh, kind of design thinking and business, and he works out of MIT, he has described for a long time that communities can make these changes if they're willing to let go. They have to drop down and let go of their voice of judgment. So you have to ask a group, I think this is key to pivoting, what is it you're afraid of? Let's talk about that. Without giving an authority, let's get it in the room. And then you have to let go of the voice of, uh, so first is the voice of judgment. Where what is it that you're kind of cynical about with this change or, or whatnot? The second is the voice of uh, fear. And the last is the voice of criticism. Um, and at a certain point, you move to a place where you've opened your head and heart and mind and you trust each other. And this is the part, this is the reason I bring Sharma up is that you see a kernel of the future in the present. And I think the great mistake is to believe that there's no future in my present life. Mm. I think that's why we feel lonely or afraid. Mm -hmm. is I go, oh, shit, I made this decision, and now the future's gone. Mm -hmm. And if you have a business, or you're working on your own inner life, or if we're in the middle of the cluster that is the latest version of political pivoting, it's so easy to go, there's no future. And that's actually, I think that that is a way of surviving. It's a, it's a fusing together, blending of parts. And so to pivot is to simply go, um, I love this future as much as the one I imagined. Um, and not because it's my favorite or, or I projected so much on you and here we are. It's like, I just, I just choose to be in love with this moment. Um, or I choose to not freeze anymore and lack the opportunity to be in love with this moment. Sometimes you can't choose to be in love and that feels pushy. It's just, I choose to, to let go of the being in resistance to, um, so that I might participate in what's emerging. Hmm. Richness. I appreciate that. You know, I think about the fact that, um, our past was once future, right? So yeah. we live through these experiences. Um, we only have the present, um, in order to act upon we can't act upon the past we can't smell or taste the future we only have the present but there is something about recognizing that 
this present moment was once future and now it is in the past. It, 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 is, it is that fleeting, it is, it is that fluid, it is that passing. And when we recognize that we've done future our whole life in the present, then the future doesn't feel so afraid or scary or daunting because we've, we've been doing this. And, and I, I think there's some power in that. And I appreciate um, how, you know, you shared um, the ways in which you personally, but also a person who was leading an organization um, and rallying a group of people move with pivots. I know my introduction to you and the hive were one in the same um, at the same time you know Sarah Buffy the connector she'd been talking about the hive for a while when she was talking to me about that I was still in grad school had you know small twins and another child you know and it was it sounded cool but ain't nobody got time for that Sarah <laughs> Buffy what are you talking about you know um and never forceful, just kind of inviting um, to this space. And then I think I, my involvement started in the beginning of 2018 when, and was this the first Oxen Bowl? Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, she was telling me about this cohort that was coming together at the Hive for entrepreneurs. And it seemed like uh, the perfect time. Interestingly, it was the perfect time for a couple of reasons. One, I had just finished grad school that December. And I had started my business in August of that year previous. So I was an entrepreneur, though I never wanted to be one. So telling me I could gather with other ones to figure out what the heck I'm doing. Uh, yes, please. I'll do that. <laughs> um, the other thing that happened was in December of 2017, I was tremendously wounded um, mm. by my church community. Mm. And that wound um, was deep. And it was very, very hurtful. And I had been connected with this community for a long time. And I, I had this history throughout my life of identifying a place of community and then very tightly holding on to it. Now, mm -hmm. by tightly holding into onto it, it also meant emerging myself completely in it, contributing to it. Um, you know, it wasn't um, a parasitic connection. Um, I was definitely uh, a very much part of it. And throughout life, I think I witnessed that happen. You know, <laughs> my mother went to a church pastored by, you know, the spiritual son of the, you know, the actual yeah, yeah, son yeah, yeah. of yeah. my grandmother's pastor, then the spiritual son. So it's just kind of like this idea that I witnessed that, you know, once you find a community, no matter what, you stick in that community, even when sometimes it's horrible. Um, and I, I think I did that at one point, work was my community. And so I immersed myself in it. And it just came a point where um, the hurt was so uh, hmm. devastating for me that, um, it was just this perfect time of recognizing, um, I needed community in a way. Now, interestingly, because of <laughs> that experience and what I absorbed growing up, I would remain a part of that community, though not fully invested for a long time, because mm -hmm. there's still this part that that's where you stay. That's what you do. But, you know, I was in my, you know, kind of finding supplemental things to meet the sure. needs that this community no longer met. So the hive just entered at this point in time mm. 
Um, and it was so integral for me because it began to illuminate for me the error of what I had been taught, which was one, that the only community that had the significant value that I needed was through a Christian church only. Mm, mm. Um, and I had not only absorbed that, but had just in some ways been told that very specifically. And so the hive became this place where, as you described it, I'm like, man, that that's, that's amazing that it wasn't about like-mindedness and the richness of the non-like-mindedness, but the shared practices and the shared commitment to be authentic um, was this combination of like, oh, this is, this is interesting. And that my role here isn't to try hard enough to get someone to think like me, but it also Mm, mm. wasn't, I have to stop thinking like myself. Right. And it says, how do we be in a way that just honors our humanity? And how do we dream together? How do we mourn together? How, you know, all of these different things. And so that introduction through that cohort, it also introduced me to people who are um, still really good friends of mine, uh, uh, several of whom have also been guests. (laughs) (laughs) on the podcast you know when I think about Claudia Lopez and our podcast on the Enneagram Meg Chisler when we talk about uh spirituality women in leadership like so many and then others who have either not yet been a guest but still connected to and the thing about the hive that was interesting to me when I got there was how in every class that I took or interaction that I had, it wasn't about a central figure saying, here, I have all this information, let me give it to you, which was the nature of grad school that I had just been in. I'd spent all these years in an academic system that says, here's what you need to know, let me give it to you. And then, you know, sure, take it and make it, but and you know the individuality of that and yeah you know but here's the test you know I had to study for a national exam that you know all these things and so it was a very refreshing way to engage um in deepening and and throughout that you know I would continue to participate and then eventually um uh you Daniel and I would connect to uh offer and a, a, a next version of Courage to Connect. And so, by the way, um, the space that Daniel and Troy held uh, to hold those conversations around what's emerging um, and specifically around race is called Courage to Connect. And I was a participant uh, in that course several times um, that then morphed into me becoming uh, a co-facilitator of that. And so I just wanted to share like my my introduction to Troy and the Hive, but how unlike other times in my life, in ways that I was even told, like, you know, this is the community you should be in, and you need to find a way to serve, or what does that look like, and how organic it was when I came into an opportunity that wasn't trying to pull or force it out of me, or it wasn't even suggested that this is how I needed to earn my keep or bargain my way, as you said, bargain my way into something, but it was just kind of this natural fit. And so I, I genuinely appreciate that. I do want to talk about one last pivot, 
Uh, and, and what that's like. And that was your transition to step aside as director of the hive, uh-huh. as the founder of the hive. And is that, was that pivot and transition similar to the ones you've mentioned before? And if not, how was that different for you? Oh, that's great. Hmm. I'd say, um, I, th- I think frequently as a leader of an organization, and I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't begrudge the word leader. I think that organizations have agreements, the more transparent they can be about who, my dog's wiggling his ears, who can be, uh, who, where, where the buck stops, who, who accepts responsibilities for this and that is really key. I think that the leader often can see kind of a balcony view can see an emerging uh, need and, and can pivot. And then sometimes the, that leader is a participant on the dance floor. This is, I'm using this image from another uh, leader or scholar, but we won't get into that. But on the dance floor, in the sense that you're, uh, you can just sense in the room, I, I don't know, for some reason I'm thinking of matrix three or whatever, like the whole everybody's bouncing. Like there's something that you can sense together and you're co-sensing. And I would say that, um, that this occurred to me before it occurred to the room. Um, and what it, what it occurred to me was, uh, um, that, I mean, one way to describe it is like in terms of business development, because nonprofits are still, they have business agreements around what, what is it that, funds and nourishes the work and then how does the work bear fruit and how does that tie as a loop to have a nourishing farm or orchard or or family or business that that, um, a lot of it had been built around um, me kind of bootstrapping and going let me I have an idea what if we do it this way and then I'm recruiting a lot of people that are putting tons of work into it but it's kind of like Troy what's the next way to plug this hole What's the next way to solve this um, impending uh, unknown? And it occurred to me that we had developed a pattern that um, that with each new pivot or challenge, I was going to become the uh, the person making that decision, and that I wanted to be more involved in holding the container for decisions than um, than having more and more years of being the uh, the captain of the ship uh, determining that. And, and, and so it's almost like, you know, we use the language of like, we grew apart like a band that might break up. Um, I think it was more like, I really felt like it was time for the hive and for me for, uh, well, I'll put it this way. I could be misunderstood, but for the hive to move out of my house. And it wasn't like the hive was in my house and we had some good family boundaries about this and whatever. Um, but I think it it need it deserved to be held by the community and and as I approach my fifties, it felt like like in combination with uh, friends. I mean, like like you and Daniel, but like uh, other friends of Kelly and mine, and um, to just go. I, I think that um, it won't be of service to this organization moving forward for me to keep being the captain. There's decisions that others should own 
um, if it's going to be collectively owned. Um, I hope that doesn't sound too uh, encoded, it, uh, but, but it really was, uh, it just, that was the hunch. And so then the work was, how will we, what do y'all think? Does that make sense to you too? And so there was a decision. Uh, I, I went, uh, I started to share about this emerging sense in June with some key leaders at the Hive, particularly uh, Geraldine and Nikki and Chris, who are on the lead team. And uh, the Hive has always been in partnership with a larger nonprofit called uh, Common Change. And so I was in conversation with them. And I thought, I think I need to pull together people to go, how does this feel for the organization? Can we weather it if I leave? How, how soon should I or shouldn't I leave? What are the things we need in place? And we actually took a retreat to uh, Hope Springs and uh, Daniel was a part of that. Um, Chris McLaren was a part of that. Chris LaRue, who's uh, uh, on the lead team around communities and communication. Geraldine Sparrow, who's now our interim director. Uh, Nikki Pappas, who works around membership and community and is a gifted facilitator herself. Um, Daniel was there. Um, uh, Adam Clark was there. I think I'm missing one person. I'm sorry for whoever you are out there. Um, but this was, a, but we then spent several days kind of going through a process of going, what have we learned about the organism or community called the Hive? Um, what has been central about Troy being in that? And what is larger than this being um, curated by or, or held by Troy? Um, what is our next direction? And uh, um, I'm really grateful for that because that did feel like group discernment and it did feel like the community didn't say good riddance, Troy, or please, 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 please don't leave. It was like, we, we honor your own inner discernment work and, and we're still friends. So let's build that, build what's next from here. And so that was the process then. And I would say, an interesting part of the process that you might not have asked about, but it's tied to that, is that there was a moment then after the letting go, and it, we really set it up so that my last day was the end of the year, and I had the gift of a two-month sabbatical, which is a huge privilege in the nonprofit sector. Um, and so I was getting ready to, to unplug, and then I was going to go to England for three weeks of that sabbatical and then spend the rest of the time writing and um, you know restoring with family. And I, uh, I just, there was a freedom of going and it's kind of like the freedom of our daughter who's beginning to, you know, going into her second year of college and she's certainly not fully independent. Um, but to watch the independence of something you cared about and really trust and trust to that, that, that community or individual you care about the opportunity for them to forge that path. That felt good. And when I came back from sabbatical, I remember taking a walk with Geraldine, uh, our interim director, and we had formed a board and I was just checking in. What do you need? How's it going? Um, I imagine I'm going to jump on the board in March. And she said, about that, we really think we're starting to set our own course together. And we realized that like to reintroduce you to the system this early is going to be uh, um it's going to change the new behaviors we've been developing. And without even thinking about it, this is the gift of sabbatical, I guess. I, my body just responded on its own. Like I didn't go to my head or whatever. And I had the goofiest grin on my face. 
and a little bit of tears in the corner of my eyes. And I was like, I, I couldn't ask for anything better. Of course, y'all go for it. Like, yeah. And so, um, so I've been able to stay involved as a facilitator. I've been able to meet sometimes with uh, um, stakeholders and donors that have been a part of this for the long haul. Um, I still deeply believe in what we, the hive is creating that, that we space. And at the same time, um, I'm curious to see how uh, the future will unfold and um, trust the humans that have said yes to caring for it. Um, you're, you know, you and Daniel and Amy and Chris are part of that. And, you know, just a lot of the ways that you've all said yes. Um, I feel met by the universe, like more part of the school of fish instead of the, um, like the one determining how the school of fish will think if that, if that was ever true. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I definitely wanted to be able to talk about that. Cause I, I do think there is such tremendous value in your story and, and, and sharing that, but for someone, you know, I know, I don't know all of my listeners, but I, I just have this, this intuitive understanding that some people needed to hear the part about starting mm-hmm. like, you know, maybe I, I don't have to go online and research all of these things. Maybe I can trust what's in me. What do I need? And know that we have such a shared human experience that the chances that someone else needs those same things are very high. And trusting that as an individual person or group of people that we are unique in what we offer and, and, and following that path. But I also think that some people needed to hear about letting go and this, this beautiful thing and that was created and cultivated and nurtured that at some point it wasn't. And then the time for the hive was over, you know, and it was great while it lasted and, you know, and all of that stuff, but the recognition that you were chosen to put the hive into place and yet we're not chosen to follow it to its conclusion in the same way that you started it. And I can guarantee someone hearing that, that hit somebody's gut and it hit somebody else's heart or your limbs to go, whoa, I never thought that was a possibility. That I think, at least for me, I've conceptualized, well, when you're, if you've started something, you finish it. (laughs) (laughs) that's what it is you start it you finish it and it goes from how we're taught to eat our food to playing a sport or having an instrument or doing some kind of extracurricular well you started it you you finish and 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 that that finishing might not be the conclusion of the thing or even that you completely walk away from it but that the, your involvement with it, your relationship with it shifts. And I, I think there's some beauty wow. in that. And um, I do, I also believe that that takes a humility and a courage that um, that is divorced from ego that oftentimes takes some work, some time and some, some uh, intentionality to do that. So I, I appreciate you very much for sharing uh, your personal journey, because um, I think there's so much to glean from it. Trey, is there anything that I didn't ask or conversation we didn't get to that you would like to leave with the listeners and share? 
No, I mean, I think we've been this. There's a million other ways we could go here. I think uh, sticking with what you just said, and then I've got kind of a, a, maybe a final thought or whatever. But what you were just saying, what strikes me is that uh, much of the entrepreneur or startup space place, you, you use the word ego. Um, and I, I think we could even say like the super ego, the part of us that's become the manager um, is what's usually appealed to in that work. And it doesn't mean that that works insignificant. It means that it's, it's kind of turbocharged with a part of you that can't weather the, the long haul. And so there's an inner work to any kind of leadership that moves you to a place of participant. And that's the part that, I, that just struck me when you were saying this is a person who is approaching their death because they're old or they're ill. Um, David White has a phrase where he talks about apprenticing yourself to your own disappearance. There's something about the letting go that isn't abandonment and it isn't violence toward yourself. It's a yes to all that you've done and a belief I get back to that, that space of faithing. It's not, it's not an intellectual ascent. It's the consent inside, the fluid area of consent that Howard Thurman would talk about. That there's something in you that goes, this has been a part of something and, and belong, this, my life and my contribution belongs to a story that doesn't belong simply to me. It's a bigger story. So you can allow the things we can, we can allow the things we create to actually have um, to be held by community responsibility. And, um, you know, somebody might listen to this a year from now and the hive could be radically different or not exist. That's always true about, about organizations and things. So I, I don't know what's in store, but it seems like um, if you're somebody that, that Shonda was just calling out and you're going, yeah, this resonates for me. I think that the first work for me is to recognize I've been a participant in the wave of the universe by giving voice to what I see and by organizing leadership and work around that. Um, but that's only it. I've been a participant in it. Every bit of money that came through the hive, every bit of work, power, and imagination, every bit of volunteering, those were other people. And, and so you could say it's a cause or a force in the world that's emerging that I had the privilege of being a conductor of, but a conductor is not the same as every violinist or percussionist or anything else. And so the freedom of going like this song can go on and it, I'm not losing myself or losing my place in the world. Uh, I would encourage folks to, to allow that. And that's not the same as abandoning your project. Um, it's not the same as coercively pushing someone to something else. Uh -huh. um, and I guess the, 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 the hook I would say here, I don't think this is huckstery and I used the word huckster earlier, but I think folks sometimes are going, what are you up to right now, Troy? And, um, and I guess to be really clear about that, it's helping people through this type of discernment. Um, so sometimes that's like in a couple of weeks, it's gonna be with an organization of therapists here in Cincinnati, helping them clarify their next step, but doing that from this um, body-based, um, intuitive-based kind of approach, um, or I'm working with a 
CFO of a startup that's considering how their organization is going to be bought out um, at, the, at the next level. And I'm helping him do the same work, like get back to his own story and his own body to discern how this might play out. And, uh, and, um, and everybody in between walking and accompanying folks for that. Um, and so I think what you're calling out, Shonda, is true. Like we, we need accompaniment to make those steps. And, uh, and maybe I'll just, I don't, I'm not going to end your podcast. You can end your podcast however you want to, but my mic drop will be like, I wouldn't be who I am today. If you weren't somebody accompanying me, Hmm. you Shonda, like really. And the gift of uh, allowing ourselves to love one another, to give each other grace, um, and to hope together um, is so important. And that's what I would say to anybody is like, you're not alone. Take the step to be with others in this because you're not alone. I appreciate that. Um, our siblingship and siblinghood mm-hmm. is beautiful and tremendously uh, appreciate uh, you showing up authentically in this space. Troy, if someone heard something you said and they want to reach out and they are just like, wait, say more, or they find themselves curious about letting go or taking the next step and maybe could use some consulting or coaching, how can people find you? Um, TroyBronsink.com. It's not super creative, but right now that's, that seems to be the space. Uh, um, I used that for quite a while when I was consulting out before the hive and now I've kind of, uh, recreated that space. So, um, it's just T R O Y B R O N S I N K. Um, but, uh, I, you know, you also can find me on, uh, um, currently I'm still using Instagram, even though I feel like Instagram is broke and, uh, and on Facebook, you can find me there and, um, and my Hive email address is still working too, Troy at cincyhive.org. Um, but I, yeah, I would love to have that conversation. I even welcome some dissent because I'm still learning how to articulate what I'm seeing in the world. I love it. So we will obviously have that information in the show notes for you to be able to get in touch with Troy. Troy, again, I thank you for your time, your presence, mm-hmm. and your genuine love today. Yeah, thank you. I, you feel, yeah, I feel like we just had a the whole roller coaster ride together. It's Thank amazing. You. You're welcome. I want to give a shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, and to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and my guest, my listeners, you all, I love you. Thank you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for content or guests, you can reach me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. Go all the way down on that welcome page, and there's a place for you to input your suggestions. Don't forget, we're on all the major social media outlets. You know, I wonder if people actually keep listening past this part, because it sounds pre-recorded, but it's not I just put on my pre-recorded voice but I want to let y'all know I have a Patreon now um I'm gonna have to do a whole episode on that there's some stuff um but if you listen to this podcast regularly um and you want to support the work that I do Patreon will be the place for you to do that as well as Patreon specific um or exclusive content y'all I do so much for free four to five days a week 
I'm putting out content that no one has to pay for. Um, and uh, it gets it gets taxing. So this is a way to support not only the creative process, but just just my labor of love. So I want to let everyone know that that is there. Um, if you haven't already, go ahead and give us that five star rating, write a review, share the podcast with your loved ones and your friends. Until we connect again, you all be well.